We are podcasting from the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Back to You is up next, but first, take a listen to this other fine Opie show. Coming up on Nude Hippo, the podcast, I talk to a couple of funny guys. Funny? What do you mean, funny? Funny like a clown? Do I amuse you? Do we make you laugh? <laughs> Rich Coe's as Fenguli, Jim Roach as... Uh, nobody important. <laughs> Nude Hippo, the podcast. Only on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. Radio or <laughs> stuff like this. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, I love it. Yeah. I, I not really podcast too much. Right, right. But, but Well, you'll find we don't either. <laughs> <laughs> the following is a Tony Lozano podcast and Opie show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is Back to You with Howard Sudbury and Steve Baskerville. And we're coming to you live from the Museum of Broadcast Communications in the Chicago Loop. This What's is a favorite up? part of your, your of your presentation. You say that every week because you always jump on lines. it, and you like you the enthusiasm you have for it is great. I, you know, you get everybody else up for the game, and uh, I think it's wonderful. I'm always impressed by it. You think it's like the Newt Rockney speech? Yes. Is that what it is? I was, was going to ask excited? you if for permission to call you Newt. Uh, sure, you can call okay. me anything you want. Okay. I've been called worse, I can tell you that right now. Okay, I'm um, sure you have. Let's tell everybody why I read it. Why do you read it? Because you won't. <laughs> you said you're going to read I everything. Tell, but you know what? Should I, should so be straight up, like, can I be straight like, up honest about this? Uh, and I know what you're about to say. We even know each other so well, we start to read the minds. And I know what you're going to say. I'm going to say it first. Okay. I want it to feel less like work. Less and less like I'm actually working. Yes. I so do. I don't want to read anything. I knew that. I don't want to do anything extra. But at the same time, you like being a facilitator. You assume that. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I, I see do, you in operation. I, I do kind of like it. Yeah. I send you notes the night yes, before. Notes so and we questions and questions bios. And like, you, like you don't know how to interview. You, you were so bad. You sent me my own bio once. And I was wondering, <laughs> why do I need to sharpen up on me? I did. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Um, you're getting ready to travel. Uh in the near future, and I, I'm always curious about this with people. Do you, or do you have a tendency to overpack, <laughs> underpack, or just right? Well, first of all, I'm going to travel in a way that you seldom travel. I am going, not going by stagecoach, but I'm driving. <laughs> My you wife are. and I get in the car, and for this next trip that we're taking, and we've done this before, um, more than once. Just driving where we want to be, because I have the luxury of time now that I'm not involved in a daily newscast right. like I was yeah. for all those years. So I don't have to be there in a hurry and get back in a hurry. So I enjoy. So so the, the issue of overpacking, I, I'm always an overpacker, unfortunately. Well, I recommend. Which makes me wonder, I, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm just, this is a tease, but our guest today travels a lot. And I'm curious to see how he packs we'll because find out, I will take his word about how to pack for journeys because he, he he's done that. He but travels anyway. all over the world. Yes. Now, you know Rick Steves, the travel expert yes. that has all the all the shows yeah. and the DVDs and yeah. everything. Um, he, I went to see him at the public TV station here, give a talk about uh, travel, right. and he said if he's going to Europe, no matter where he's going, he never takes more than a carry-on. 
Mm, man, I don't take. And look, carry on is just one of like five or six things I take. I'm like the old George Carlin material. When I go, I got to have my stuff. <laughs> well, I need all my stuff. You've got go. a lot of stuff then. So this would be, you've already answered this. Uh, you've heard of Tommy John, the pitcher. Yes. The pitcher. And yes. what is he best, for what is he best known? For his hurt arm, right? Yeah. And Tommy John surgery, yes. which brought him back, and players yes. get Tommy John What's surgery that have to do with traveling? all the time. Well, there's an, he doesn't own it, but there's an underwear company called Tommy John. And... Listen to this. As I always as, pack enough underwear. As far as packing always. goes. But listen to this. <laughs> what? How many, they did a survey, how many percentage, <laughs> percent of Americans Man. admit to wearing the same pair of underwear two days or longer, would you guess? I'd say 10%. 45%. Yeah, well. How many a week or more? Ooh, now you're getting close to the 10%, I would hope. 13 percent. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. That's getting nasty. How many never change? <laughs> uh, they, didn't, they didn't ask that question. You know why? Man. They were afraid to get the answer. Well, um, well as far as packing, <laughs> I, mean, I always pack enough underwear. I start there. By the way, I start, in terms of my body, I start uh, inside and work my way out. So I have my, my uh, underwear and I have my socks, and then I work my way to the, to the other yeah. outer garments. How old is your underwear? <laughs> I asked this because they say that 38% of the people surveyed yeah. don't know how old their underwear is. I know how old some of it is. Most right. of it is. Nah. How old is it? Yeah. I don't have, have underwear that goes back years. <laughs> I mean. You sure? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure. So, uh, you know, our guest is sitting here thinking. <laughs> our guest what? is still here after this nonsense. <laughs> what in the, the hell did I get into? <laughs> we got guys talking about packing and about underwear. No, we got you talking about that. <laughs> I'm with our, never, our guest. Uh, I'm getting ready to leave too. Hi, how are you? Hello. Should she I wait? You know what I don't she like? Was very nice. She waved to you and didn't wave to me. Right. See, I am so defensive. You know why she waved to me? Is it your relative or what? She thought I was going to ask her an underwear question. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she heard the underwear question. <laughs> yeah, and she found out you yes. didn't know how old yours was. Okay. This was um, a great show. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Uh, let's get to our guest right yes. now. Yes. Um, I like a lot of things about him. Uh, I've got to, got to know him pretty well over the last couple of years, and I like the fact that he is homegrown. He's a Chicago gentleman, and his name is Frank Catalano. He's had a fascinating career, and Frank, welcome to Back to You. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. We haven't chased you away. <laughs> the, I think probably with that last underwear question, with the week or longer, those underwears probably could walk off on their own. So, yes, they so could. If we're all still here, I think yes. we're doing something okay. You just stand them in the corner when you, when you get to the hotel room. Um, so we were talking a little bit before you. So are you a saxophone player, a saxophonist? Uh, what would the proper reference to be to to what you do? Yeah, because I know we were joking around a little bit, but I've heard so many different saxophonists, saxophone players, sax man, like going down the list, but I usually just say saxophone player. Saxophone player, all right. Um, when you Were you in the high school band or orchestra, or were you involved in organized music uh, before that, when you, were, when you were in grade school? Yep. Um, I started... Uh, playing the saxophone 
probably like second grade-ish, but not in school. Uh, my neighbor was selling a saxophone at a garage sale, and my mom wouldn't let me buy it, but the saxophone <laughs> didn't sell. So I would just go over there like pretty regularly and just start playing <laughs> on it, cool. and I really liked it. And then my mom rented me one. And then I started playing, like, fourth, fifth grade when you start in, like, grade school, you know, simple things like Ode to Joy and, like, uh-huh. you know, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, that type of stuff. But I had already been playing for a little bit just on my own and by ear as well. So I started playing with the, the choir and uh, the chorus. And I just remember uh, I was probably 9 or 10, and they were singing Rock and Robin, like the Jackson 5 version, and I learned it on my own, and the chorus teacher was real excited, and she's like, well, you should play saxophone along with the chorus. So uh, that was the first time I played in public for people, and everyone liked it, and it was super fun for me. So I kept, of course, like in the, you know, junior high school, high school uh, band and, and stuff like that, but I always made sure to then, on my own, either take lessons with you know, great players where I could. Saxophone player Von Freeman kind of became my mentor and uh, he never gave me any formal saxophone lessons, but always would have me sit in with them at places like Andy's down the street in the Green Mill. And then yeah. we started performing together. And uh, Now, how old are you at that time? I was about 12. Really? Wow. Yeah, like six, sixth, seventh grade. I find it really inter- interesting that I would assume would have assumed that you started on piano or some other instrument. So you started right on the saxophone. My my uncle did get me like a electric keyboard when yeah. I was like two or three because I just loved music from the get go. But I don't even think I knew what a saxophone mm-hmm. was when I was that little. Uh-huh. It wasn't until I saw one in person and I didn't even really know what it sounded like I just thought it looked real cool and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I liked all the buttons and the keys and I was immediately drawn to it but but I did start you know uh, not playing well but I did start on keyboard uh-huh. And I, I remember the first time that I actually was near a real piano, I tried to, like, get sounds out of it, and I was so used to just hitting, like, the electric keyboard where yeah. you push the the key, sound comes out, and I realized, wow, piano is much more difficult, even though it looks the same, you know, as far as the layout of the, the keyboard and stuff, uh, you have to really hit it properly for the hammer to actually, like, mechanically hit the strings and make a sound versus, you know, an electric electronic uh, instrument that you barely can push the key and sound will come out. So I'm that, you know, maybe I was like five or six at that time. I remember that really kind of like threw me for a loop that I could like play some stuff and sound okay on the electric keyboard. But then when I got to the real piano, it was horrible, <laughs> even though they look in theory the same. And you made this leap from like, now here you are, a 12 year old. And you're sort of, I mean, at that point, you're almost mastering it, right? If you're playing with uh, oh, I, professionals I, like I, that. I felt kind of proud that I was getting to, to you know, do things in, at that level. And I was, I had quite a few gigs every week at little coffee houses and stuff like that where 
we're not talking about big dollar amounts like it might be twenty dollars or something but in this would be like you know in the late 80s i guess like maybe like you know 87 88 you know to to be able to go have fun and come back with 20 or 30 dollars that's probably like a hundred dollars of today's money or something i yeah. don't know like you could for you could for you could be set for the week with 20 bucks <laughs> I if I so, sure so it was to me really cool and then my mom when when she realized that i was coming home with money then <laughs> She's like, wow, okay, the saxophone stuff—it's pretty good. You know, so, is that, is that when you started thinking, hey, I can make a living doing this? I pretty much—I uh, I feel real blessed that I did get to start when I was so young, because uh, I would say probably about the time I was 12, 13, especially getting to to play with well-known people like Vaughn and all the people he introduced me to. Even at that age, I—I I was certain I'd be able to make. A living from playing music I didn't know to what extent but I didn't really care about making too much money or anything like that I just thought if I could make a living from doing this and I love it so much then that would be awesome and I felt very confident that I would be able to yeah and you have worked with the greats I mean geniuses of music and jazz and just great musicians just give us a few names well, I mean, I appreciate you saying that, Steve. It is it is kind of funny that, like, we're talking about stuff from over 30 years ago, yeah. and it seems like yesterday to me, but <laughs> how does 30 years go by that fast? But it does. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I started playing with Vaughn, and 20 years ago I got to headline the Chicago Jazz Festival with him, and I'm going to do that again, um, you know, coming up. Unfortunately, Vaughn, you know, passed away a while ago, so I'm just going to do that with, you know, my band. But I try to always, uh, you know, when I'm playing the Green Mill, when I'm playing things that I have fond mem- places that I have fond memories of us playing together, I always try to dedicate a song to him and keep his memory alive uh, as well. But um, uh, through him, as a young person, I got to play with Miles Davis. Mm. I got wow. to play with uh, Tommy Flanagan that played on John Coltrane's, you know, Giant Steps and like a lot of those famous uh, pivotal Coltrane recordings. Uh, drummer Elvin Jones that was John Coltrane's drummer for a long time so those I consider like true you know geniuses for sure and I got to do that when I was really really young and then uh, drummer Louis Belson took a real liking to me and um, couldn't have been cooler and he was married to Pearl Bailey yes. and uh, oh, I remember that. and was Duke Ellington's drummer for many years, wow. as well as Count Basie's, like, you know, invented the double bass drum. So he introduced me to so many people like Tony Bennett. And then, you know, Tony Bennett had me play in his band for a while. And uh, so, so many nice things happened even before I was out of high school. Um, I, I just felt super lucky. Um, probably, you know, in the late like say senior year of high school going into like my freshman year of uh, college at DePaul University uh, I met Bob Kester who owned Delmark Records and he signed me to a solo recording contract you know when I was 18 so that that's what changed my whole kind of course uh, musician wise because I was planning on just being a sideman <laughs> playing saxophone with a bunch of people because I just love playing yeah, sure. but then it became a different thing when now I have to write the songs and put the stuff together so that was a real game changer. Can I go back just to Miles? Alright now sure. you, Miles Davis was physically there while you were there playing. Oh, yeah. Alright can I tell you I just want to get a little geeky jazz geeky here with um, 
I'll go. I'll start with Miles. I was in the company of Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie. Wow. And you know, not to the extent that you were playing with Miles or anything like that. But I want to see if you agree with my interpretation of Miles when I met him uh, in the '80s. Miles was very cool, very cool, dressed really nicely, dark sunglasses on inside. Um, you know, quiet, raspy voice, didn't say much of anything. He was married at the time to Cecily Tyson. Mm. Oh. And Cecily was doing a lot of talking, not for Miles, but, you know, she was doing more of the talking. And he would occasionally say a yes or a no or right. that's right. And here's his good friend, Dizzy Gillespie, who's wild. He's all over the place. He's jumping <laughs> up and down and, hey, what's happening? Life of the party. And you're wondering, how could this man who's over here be as, as close to Miles as he was, and they're totally opposite characters. I would think, and Miles Davis had a reputation for sort of being difficult to work with at times, or moody, uh, always sort of a romantic kind of player, I thought, through his music. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a sense that you would get when you listen to that early Miles Davis stuff, mm -hmm. very cool yep. right now how was he with you i mean how did you find him to be i mean i didn't get to know him all that well he didn't say that much to me but i mean i just thought he couldn't have been more supportive and cool and i really think like like what you just said like he, maybe he gets a, a reputation for being a um a little bit more aloof yeah. or like, you know, kind of like I would say, quote unquote, bad boy right, kind right, of because right. of, uh, you know, s some things that he would say uh, and whatnot. But I just think he was a, a really great guy. And, it, and I can actually, without question, say sometimes people that get that reputation, I don't know if they do it as a way of almost self-promotion because people love to talk about people mm -hmm. that are controversial and mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that. But I just thought he couldn't have been cooler. And he also made it a point always, I felt, to cultivate young up-and-coming players when he didn't have to because everyone wants to, wants to play with Miles Davis. He could have any, any sure. player he wants sure. to have him come play with him. And the fact that he would choose to, in many, many cases, you know, help start out people careers when he didn't have to, I think that just shows what a, a great person he was. Even if he didn't say a lot of things, um, him and Von Freeman were definitely friends, and they had played together like in the 40s, and Von was older than uh, Miles Davis was, and I think the whole connection with all of them, including Dizzy Gillespie, would have been Charlie Parker, yes. because, you know, Dizzy playing with Charlie Parker, and then the the story of in the 40s when Miles started playing with Charlie Parker was that, you know, Dizzy kind of got <laughs> tired of some of the, you know, I think people don't realize that when you go on the road and you play with somebody in a band, yeah. you know, you're maybe not actually married to them, and luckily, my wife, Sona, usually comes along on, on all my tour stuff, so she kind of keeps me level-headed. But, you know, it is a true, like, partnership, whether you're hiring the person, whether they're hiring you, whether it's a co-led band. And there's a reason why so many bands break up yeah. <laughs> quickly, because when you're out traveling and you're having to perform and, you know, the energy is up there and the adrenaline's going, if somebody messes something up on stage, boy... 
does everybody, you know, feel it? And then if somebody messes something up behind the scenes, doesn't get on the flight, oversleeps there, whatever, you know, and we're not even talking about, you know, other things like substance abuse, drinking too much, you know, whatever it might be, you know, all those things that come into play. So my understanding was, but I obviously wasn't there, so I could be wrong for sure, but that basically Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker were, even though their music was so wonderful, they weren't getting along because Charlie Parker was known to have, uh, you know, you know, many issues going on and whatnot. And so Miles Davis came into the situation and my understanding was Dizzy Gillespie wanted Miles to kind of replace him okay. and knew that Miles was a really good young player. And I think in, in, from what I could gather, you know, Miles Davis, I'm sure, really appreciated that and enjoyed that because that launched Miles's career. And I think he always kept that in in mind, trying to trying to help other younger people. Yeah, passing it on. Mm-hmm. Steve, did it ever cross your mind after that encounter that maybe maybe Miles just didn't like you? <laughs> I wasn't the I wasn't the only one standing there, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> did okay. I, do I did I do a good Miles? That's a very good. Yeah, but everyone loves like Steve. That. He's pretty good. Every, you're right. Every everybody does. No, but I and I was only witnessing this or part of this for minutes. But to travel and to play with somebody like Miles Davis and to learn from guys who played with the greats and they cultivate a career like yours, man. That's we were talking about travel. Give us yep. an example of the traveling that you've done. Well, <laughs> before, before we started recording, uh, I mentioned how I had a concert in Macau, China, that took truly like 24 hours to get to China. Then it was like waiting for this jet foil like boat thing. And then the boat is probably, I don't know what looks like, you know, I don't know, four foot by four foot wide. Uh, it was bigger than that, but it, it was not real big. And it is like an hour and a half ride to get, you know, from mainland China out to Macau. And then I saw the line of people and I'm thinking like, uh-oh, and not kidding, I I really think they, they got about 150, 200 people on what looks like a mini hovercraft situation. So then when you have saxophones and luggage and other stuff like sure. we were talking about. Uh, Overpacking. Oh my, oh Overpacking. My, yes. It was just. <laughs> so uh, to kind of go into the packing thing, I do <laughs> after that, I do try to travel as light as possible with still having everything that I, okay, I think I need. Go. Uh, Frank, why jazz? And tell me. Uh, in your words, what is magical about it? That's a great question because uh, it wasn't even like it was a conscious thought. You know, I, I as soon as I started hearing it and getting into it, uh, my my uh, seventh, I would say I was probably in probably seventh grade, um, and I was given a, a best of Verve recordings, Charlie Parker. Uh, recordings, so that would have had you know Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, like all yeah. the people we're talking about yeah. on there, you know, performing alongside uh, Charlie Parker. And I I heard this, and it just, I just like stopped in my tracks, and I tried my best to learn as much of the solos as I could, but they're you know they're very difficult. So uh, you know, it definitely took me a long, long time to uh, kind of transcribe them and memorize them. But I just had such fun listening to it and it was so challenging to play I just loved it I used to you know 
this is kind of before CDs, but I would have like a little like kind of cassette recorder thing and I would record like TV commercials and other things that had some saxophone in it and then I would try to learn that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what a uh, hassle that is stopping oh, and playing and stopping. It, de- it. it definitely <laughs> it definitely uh wasn't the most fun and I'm thinking, you know, prior to that, like cassettes, everyone, you know, would have had maybe records, but that's even worse trying to transcribe because you know, I can't even tell you how many records I ruined. <laughs> you start, you dr- drop the new, you know, like, oh, especially, you know, I'm like maybe nine or 10, 11 yeah. at the time. And I could, I was barely even tall enough to like get the arm of the, uh, on the, of the turntable up to even change the records. And I just remember being so upset. I messed up a bunch, but, uh, so when the CDs came in and, uh, and I got the, the Charlie Parker one that did help, you know, being able to like, rewind a little bit and then more on the pop side of things uh dave sanborn saxophone player was always on like the david letterman show and always stuff and um so i got a a cd of his and me and dave sanborn the first time he heard me play i was in charles erland's band and we were opening up for him uh at a jazz festival in columbus ohio and i remember talking with him for a long time he like you know came on stage while i was soloing and like was you know real excited and uh uh, also super supportive. That's and the greatest compliment you can I, get. It is. I felt so happy, and he, he said he passed my name around to a lot of people and, and really helped me. And about two years ago, we did a, a two-saxophone album together called Bye Bye Blackbird. Cool. So I thought that was, again, talking about mentors and stuff, getting to do an album with one of your favorite people. Sure. I want to name another one of his mentors, just as fate would have it. I don't listen to a whole lot of music lately for some reason, like in the last few years, because I'm into more talk radio and things like that. You know that, Howard. Yeah. But I got in the mood last, maybe about four days ago, for a certain cut, a song. I I don't know what inspired it, but I said, I started hunting for it. And I was, uh, 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 one of my favorite artists was a guy named Les McCann. Oh, totally. And Les McCann had this guy with them named Eddie Harris. Yep. Eddie Harris played the saxophone. You got to hear a song called Compared to What? Trying to make it real compared to what? It's it's awesome. And yeah. now wasn't Eddie Harris one of uh, your influences? Yeah. I mean, the first time I, I got to meet Eddie Harris and Les McCann, uh, they came to the Green Mill. I would say this is maybe like 1992 three or 1994 and I was playing with Charles Zerland and they were playing at the jazz showcase for the week okay and um, and they came over and sat in and both were super cool and I got to be you know I would say those last few years of Eddie Harris's life become pretty friendly he gave me a saxophone mouthpiece would let me sit in you know at his stuff would come sit in and talk about like an amazing saxophone player with chicago roots but here's the thing about him he had an electric saxophone right at at times he had this like i think the official name was veritone 
and it it was supposed to you know vary the tones yeah uh and it kind of plugged into the neck of the saxophone and uh yeah especially like on those like famous 60s 70s albums like you know listen here uh mm-hmm. compared to what cold duck time all those it's a it's a really i mean he was a true innovator and also you would put a, a saxophone style mouthpiece on the trumpet and sometimes play trumpet that okay. way that was really Amazing too, but yeah. Uh, well, well, when I heard that Frank or read that Frank was inspired by Eddie Harris, Eddie Harris was one of one of the on, on this most album here. I I wrote a song, the third track, uh, Chicago Eddie, huh. and I dedicated that to Eddie Harris. So yeah, it's funny you're bringing that up because very that's cool, very much hitting home with me for sure. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we are going to take a brief break. Uh, this is back to you with Howard Sudbury and Steve Baskerville, and we're visiting with uh, a Grammy-winning saxophone player Frank Catalano born and bred right here in Chicago, Illinois and we're coming to you from the Museum of Broadcast Communications and we will be right back Minutia Men with Rick and Dave. On this week's Minutia Men with Rick and Dave, a very special Minutia Men. Lots of great interviews. Great Cubs stories. Great Cubs trivia. Great Cubs audio. Blah, blah, Cubs, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And Chicago Cub former players Carmen Fanzone and Adam Greenberg. All that and unlimited Cubs tangents on this week's Minutia Men. The Tony Lasano Podcast, an OPI production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Radiomisfits.com. Coming up on the next episode of the Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive, we'll celebrate Lou's return from Arizona with the Car Guys Report Bull Session. I'm Mark Vernon. Join me and Lou Costable for lots of bull. There'll be plenty to go around on the Car Guys Report, a Tony Lasano podcast, an OPI production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is Back to You with Howard Sudbury and Steve Baskerville. back on back to you coming to you once again from the museum of broadcast communications and back to you is howard sudbury and steve baskerville and visiting with uh saxophone player frank catalano and we were just hearing a little bit of chicago eddie that we were talking about going into the break inspired by the great eddie harris who was one of the uh saxophone players that uh i guess was sort of like a mentor definitely to you, frank right yeah huge Inspiration and mentor, to say the least. Now, I had early on some occasions to uh, run into saxophone players in particular. When I was a teenager, uh, there was a a friend of mine, uh, sort of a casual friend in a circle of friends, whose father, I can't remember whether it was his father or his uncle, was a guy named Red Prysock. Mm. You remember that name? I I know of him. I, I never met him or anything, but yeah, he was... A uh, very well-known saxophone yeah. player, and then uh, and then later on, I met Grover Washington. Oh wow! Yeah, because hmm. that's all Philadelphia, and yep. a lot of these places that 
Um, a lot of these names that uh, Frank is mentioning have Philadelphia connections. That's yep. why I keep mentioning them. Even Coltrane yep. and uh, some other artists who would either live there or come to f go to Philadelphia to play their music. You you got Philadelphia dates coming up. You've been there yeah, before, right? I I love playing Philadelphia. I have a, a really cool club called South coming up, and uh, I love playing in Philadelphia and one of the people that started hiring me as a teenager that really helped me a lot was a uh, Hammond B3 organ player Charles Erland and uh, uh, Grover Washington's first recording was with Charles Erland mm. in the early 70s uh, an album I believe it was called Live at the Lighthouse it was a, a live album and that was Grover Washington's introduction into the jazz world and then everyone realized how great he was and then got signed to do his own uh, albums. I think they called him Mr. Magic. Yep. That, yeah. that song Mr. <laughs> Mr. Magic, Magic is, really. is really Bob James on the keyboards. I mean, that's a that's a a classic in what I'd call kind of, you know, not smooth jazz, but kind of soulful, right. you know, uh, jazz that I, I really love. When the jazz kind of got that, that term smooth jazz and it got kind of watered down, That's that on a personal level is not my favorite. Right. But that earlier, you know, Dave Sanborn, Bob James, uh, Grover Washington, all, all that stuff, I feel like that's kind of coming out of the Les McCann, Eddie Harris stuff. Yes. as well so yes. it's it's a really cool musical progression and special a little bit of funk in there mm -hmm. and, yeah and Bob but see this man really knows his stuff because he goes all the way back to Dizzy Gillespie and the bebop guys <laughs> and sure then progressing does. through there anybody yes. and the reason why I am so uh taken aback by all this is because he's a young man relatively yes. speaking yes I'm talking about guys before my time. And Frank, I mean, you're what? Like, I, I'm 42 now. Yeah, I mean, so. come on. So that what he does is he keeps this music alive, sure, and it will live forever. Which which will lead me to a question that uh, every interview you do, you are asked, and do you know what it is? Hmm, I'm not. I'm not sure. It is. Have you seen La La Land? You know what? I actually have not. I, every, Interesting. I, I can. I, I've seen parts of it, like on various <laughs> flights, and and quite honestly, I I knew I know the gist of the movie, but I've not actually <laughs> said. I I don't think I've actually sat down and watched a movie start to finish for quite some time, unfortunately. But I've not actually seen the whole movie head to toe. I mean, I've I know the movie and I've seen parts of it. I thought it was a, a great movie. It was Ryan Reynolds, yes. right? Yes. No, I haven't seen all of it either. You haven't you? No. Really? Just about like I, Frank's <laughs> describing it. I've seen it parts of it. Because, you know, you had two people that were, you know, dating and kind of dating and Ryan Reynolds and I, and I can't think of the name of the, but she was playing an actress it's very good. They're mm -hmm. both trying to make it. You know, he's trying to keep jazz alive, yeah. mm -hmm. and he's a he's a jazz musician, and um, it just shows the struggle in entertainment yep. and in Hollywood in trying to make it. Yep. It's it's difficult, and I'm sure you had those ups and downs. It's difficult to make it in it's, in in the arts. It's very tough, and uh, it's funny because I was talking about that the other day to someone. And um, I don't think people realize, you know, uh, it's it's hard to, to make it in any industry. Like, you know, if you want to be 
a doctor, lawyer, or whatever. Yes. That's not easy at all. Uh, it, it, no matter what you do, there's difficulties. But the thing with, I would say, being you know a visual artist, being a music artist, especially when you're not like playing uh, mainstream stuff. You mm-hmm. know, if you're not looking to be uh, a pop artist, if you're looking to be a working artist, it is very difficult because essentially you're kind of um, every day. You know, looking for a new job in in a way as where even every industry has difficulties. But if you, um, you know, let's just say you decide to be a doctor, you get hired by a hospital. It might be a very brutal, demanding schedule because I have a lot of friends that are doctors. My my buddy Robert Gay played drums in my band for a long time and is a very accomplished anesthesiologist. So of all the people that, you know, I'm thinking about people that I love and have a ton of respect for, it'd be people like him who, you know, are finding ways to, like, you know, play music that they love and then still be a really, you know, high-end doctor. I don't know, you know, that's got to be real tough but at least financially if you know he's on the schedule it might be a demanding schedule but you know he makes a really good income and you know you know what's going on as a musician you know that's rough because you could have a big stretch of time where people aren't calling you to do stuff and then you could have like a time where you're getting called to do 200 gigs in one month where there's no way that you could possibly (laughs) do that many so it's kind of like well the when it rains it pours thing i i I feel like this, this last 10 years or so for me personally, I really liked how things have gone because I feel like I do turn down quite a bit of things, but there's always really nice, you know, offers and opportunities uh, coming in. So I feel like everything, I would say like the last decade, I, I'm real happy with how everything's gone. I can say, though, that in my 20s, it was kind of a rude awakening because uh, I would say I was... 21 or 22 when Charles Erlin passed away and I was doing you know about 100 gigs a year with him and what I realized at that time that I've said to some you know younger players that are in their teens and 20s now that are out there doing it is like don't take for granted while you're out there doing those gigs that you have somebody that's hiring you for them so be very thankful to the person that's hiring you you know, for these gigs and also do your very, very best so that that person is happy. (laughs) So they (laughs) keep hiring you. And then also, you know, uh, cultivate your own band and your other, uh, you know, musical interests while still doing these other gigs. Because if you wait until, let's say, your main gig is is done, let's say somebody's playing drums with a well-known singer, if they wait until that set of gigs is gone and then they start you know emailing and picking up the phone and just saying hey do you got any gigs that you can put me on and stuff like that uh then that can get uh uh, i would say kind of dangerous so while things are you know uh moving and happening i think it's good to cultivate all your musical interests they always say you know i guess it goes for a lot of professions it's always easier to get a job when you got a job that's so (laughs) true (laughs) yes it is well the other thing i think probably has changed over the years is records and cds I would, I'm guessing, would drive folks to an artist. Now I would think the performance and being out there live drives you to their 
music, whether you stream it or whether you buy a CD. Yep, and uh, the streaming is, to me, uh, just a true phenomenon that I I don't fully understand, but but I've I've come to embrace it. Yeah. Because I like making albums. Right. And, it, right. and and like all of these CDs, they're available on physical vinyls yes. because I love them. So I made sure to have the vinyls made, and people like to collect them, and and that's how I am. But the streams are pretty fascinating because I get many messages between you know Instagram, Facebook, you know uh, old school emails. You you know, all the above, that people discover my music based on, you know, Apple Music, Spotify, that type of right. stuff. Because if somebody does type in John Coltrane and they listen to John Coltrane, yes. and then maybe five songs later, maybe a Frank Catalano song comes yes. in because yeah. of that algorithm or whatnot, right. I, I, I now am very excited, and I think it's a great thing. Financially, unfortunately, like, you know, used to go get a record deal people would complain about maybe the record label taking advantage of the artist and stuff which obviously did happen but there was a lot of you know money coming in so you would usually get a pretty solid you know uh advance or signing check or however you want to say it and i was like okay this is pretty cool there's there's a tangible amount of money as where the streams are to me still interesting because you might have one that does really really well and you might get some money from that one but average ones i mean even if even if you have a song that you know has hundreds of thousands of streams i don't know what that check's gonna mean Hmm. but we're really talking about not a lot of money but from an exposure standpoint of people coming across your music that then maybe go hear you play live and pay to get in so it i feel like everything is kind of like you know kind of uh working together in an interesting way as were before some people i don't know if they even really toured they would just like you know you know sell a bunch of records and they would you know maybe do a little bit of a tour but i like sade is somebody that comes to mind because i mean you know she sold millions of records everyone knows who she is um very well off financially but she she doesn't do too many gigs because she didn't really have to because of all the record sale revenue and stuff so i I have to ask you a question because, uh, and you, you told me that you hadn't talked about it until a few years ago, and it, it it's a big part of your story. You were in a serious car accident, um, I don't know how many years ago, um, how old you were, but you lost part of a finger. You then had to, I assume, learn how to play the saxophone over again and Tell me that story, and did you think there was a time you weren't going to be able to play? Well, uh, I was 16, and yeah, I had, you know, half of my right middle finger cut off, and um, I was so worried about my finger getting put back on, but the paramedics were like, I don't think you get it. You're losing so much blood. <laughs> we're, we're just trying to keep you alive. Oh, okay. Don't worry about the finger. Yes. And But luckily, uh, there was a really awesome surgeon at the hospital, you know, when I got there, and his name was Damien Gress, and, uh, uh, you know, he he's like, we're going to find a way to get your finger back on, and, uh, and did, and took out parts, like, um, near my thumb and used, you know, some tendons and, like, reconstructed it. And, it, I mean, it works good. Um, I would say that uh, there was at least two years 
where there just wasn't really any feeling in it. Hmm. So I was using my, uh, you know, right index finger to kind of do both of those keys by curling it up so that the pearl of the first finger in my right hand was kind of like at like my middle knuckle and then the pearl of the key that would be for the middle finger was like at the tip of the index finger so it wasn't really good you know technique wise but that's all that i could really think to do plus people don't realize with that type of surgery i think my finger was in a pin for about eight months Hmm. Uh, and it did you know take a a while after the pin came out your finger doesn't just go like okay cool (laughs) it it takes months and then once the nerves have been attached like your brain is telling your fingers to move but you know it's not moving so I just remember I was so happy like you know a few months after the pin came out my finger just started spasming for like 10 minutes and it it was freaking me out and then after that, it kind of settled down, and I was able to actually, like, when it, when my brain said to move, it started moving. So that's a freaky thing, too, just that there's that whole side of people think, like, oh, that's bad. Your finger was cut off, but now your finger's been put back on, so you should be okay. It's like, well, the way nerves and stuff work, it, and anyone that's had a serious injury, I'm sure, you know, can say your body (laughs) does not always do what you want it to do afterwards so it takes a lot of uh you know uh occupational therapists physical therapists you you know your own mindset you know uh but the funny thing is even if you have all the drive and determination you're like you know okay i'm gonna get better and and this is gonna be okay after a few months go by and you realize there isn't much progress that's when at least for me my brain was like like, uh-oh, mm. this is not mm. good. I never said I wasn't going to keep playing, but because I was able to still do some gigs and stuff, you know, uh, with kind of what I had developed, uh, like, as a workaround, but I also knew I would never be able to play at the level that I would like to. So I I would say I didn't let myself really get down and then by by, like at the point where i was starting to get kind of like really concerned my fingers started working really so but i do know that if it had gone on for a few more months i'm not saying i would have given up at all but i could tell it was getting to the point where i was like hmm this is well in to me you took a, a horrific experience in your life and through perseverance and belief and going through the occupational therapy and everything, you did persevere, and that's probably made you a stronger person today, I would think. And for people that are going through horrible things in their lives, yep. it shows you that if you if you believe that you, that you have hope. Oh, totally. And, and I think that's the thing. Like, even when things are really bad, <laughs> you have to keep a good attitude. Yeah. And and I, for me, maybe it's my finger getting cut off, but I guarantee you every person, you know, that listens, you know, to this, uh, you know, has had something horrific happen mm-hmm. to them. Sure. You know, it, it might not be a finger getting cut off. It, there's so many different types of things. But, yeah, it really is keeping a, a positive attitude and a positive mindset, even when it's not you know easy to do so uh, but no I, I I didn't really talk about it for too much but you know uh, talk about much until recently just because uh, it's kind of at least for me also something that I 
I don't want to say blocked out of my head, <laughs> but it's kind of sure. like, you know, uh, if you are a positive person, like I know the three of us are, it, it's kind of like you're excited about like, oh, I'm going to play the Arlington Million next week. So you yes. start working on this and you're like, oh, I got the jazz physics. <laughs> like right. there, there's these, all these cool things um, that you're looking forward to as opposed to like looking back and thinking yes. about it. Uh, but but now that uh, quite a bit of time has gone by and uh, and I'm kind of like reflecting on it a little bit. It is like, wow, you know. I did it. And, you know. and it probably has a way of making you appreciate today. Totally. Just, exactly. you know, hey, I'm happy to be here you today. Know? And it's fun. And uh, and I also know it could have gone a different direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but like, there's, um, there's so many people uh, that I've gotten to know also by... Uh, you know, maybe they tell me something that's going on in their day, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily the most upbeat. Right. But I think, you know, uh, I maybe never have said to them, uh, oh, by the way, I had my finger cut off. But I do think it does just, you know, it humbles you, and it makes you just go like, whoa, maybe I was getting ready to do this other thing, but I'm going to make 15 minutes for this person that I don't even really know, yeah. you know? Sure, sure. Uh, it, I mean, it's happened to me at restaurants. People just start talking to me. Obviously, you know, like at clubs, if I'm playing or something, you know, I, I actually had a band member get mad at me because we were a little late <laughs> getting back on the stage for the second set and then my friend who's a manager is coming over like hey you got to get up there but it's like somebody was telling me like a really heartfelt story yeah. and uh and i i didn't have the heart to say okay you know enough talking i gotta get back on stage so i did let my band members and the manager get a little bit mad at me but at the end of the day i'm like well Whatever, I would rather be there for this person who who's confiding in me and opening up to me than sure. than worry about squeaking in another song. Yeah. <laughs> from the set. Well, you've got perspective. Definitely, everybody hopes hope, that they yeah. can attain at some point. Yeah, I want to ask one of those just as a fan, like, what's this person like? Kind of question. Did you work? You worked with Jennifer Lopez. Mm-hmm. You worked with John Legend. Mm-hmm. What are they like? You know, again, uh, I got to know John Legend a little bit, and, you know, he, he's a really great guy. I didn't really get to know Jennifer Lopez personally, but she was also very cool. Like, you know, she like she's, like, we were mentioning Miles Davis before about, like, has made a reputation for not being yeah. maybe as friendly. Yeah. She was super friendly, you know? Now, did, so, did you have to rehearse with her before whatever this event was? Or? I, I didn't do any uh, rehearsing with her. I was mostly doing the studio work side of it but she was there okay so and i mean and she she's not one of those people that like kind of just like slaps her name on something at the end so she gets involved oh totally and i really respected that a lot because there are a lot of you know other pop people that i've you know played on some of their stuff or done some stuff with who i could just tell they have a manager that comes and does everything and then yells at (laughs) me (laughs) or whoever is producing it or whatever and you know uh the 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 person whose name is on the album as the solo artist was never even there okay. and probably doesn't even know <laughs> what's happened slaps their name on as a co-writer at the end of it or and whatever. i imagine john legend would really be involved oh totally he's a great musician and he's a, a great guy and i i wish i got to know him better than i did but uh but he i would say a plus on all levels sure. there's another guy that was in la la land 
was John Legend. John Legend. Yeah, yeah. Well, another, he's a, another reason to see it. But he writes and produces. Oh, he, he is a, does all of that. Uh, he's a fantastic, fantastic performer. And um, my son's in Los Angeles, and he's worked on music videos, and he worked on one that John Legend was mm-hmm. on, and he said mm-hmm. that he was he was the consummate professional. Yep. And he was into his work. He was focused, but he was he was so kind to everybody. So that's what I've heard about him. Um, Want to mention to everybody, uh, we invite you to listen, subscribe, rate, back to you on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in. Just search for Radio Misfits. And as we get close to wrapping things up here, Steve, I want to ask, well, I'll ask you, and then Frank will answer the question. Have you heard of a Catalano sidecar? Yeah. Because I read about it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and wait a minute. And it sounds like something I might want right now, right? I, I, I'm thinking I might want one. We might have to all run over to Club Lucky or whatnot after this. Yes. <laughs> and it is Drambui. Yep, I'm... And, uh, and what else, uh, what's the uh, mixture? Uh, how do you make it? Well, it's it's in, I or think... Or is it just ab- Drambouille and Drambouille? <laughs> <laughs> well, I like Drambouille and soda water even, like, on its own. But my buddy uh, Tom at Club Lucky came up with this a, a few years ago now, maybe four years ago, uh, when I became the spokesperson for uh, Drambouille. And uh, the the original one, which started at Club Lucky, but it's in, I I think it's in three or four hundred you know restaurants and jazz clubs now. I know it's in where I play in New York all the time, Birdland, uh, Tula's in Seattle. It's you know it's in a uh, six degrees here. I, Andy's in the Green Mill. I mean it's it's so in a lot of places. Just go away and ask for a sidecar. I think you could say if you said the Catalano sidecar yeah. or if you said a Drambui sidecar. Right. It's basically got some cognac in it it's got some drambouille it's got a little bit of lemon juice and probably something like a little bit orange flavored like either salerno or cointreau and they shake it up so it gets real cold and it's (laughs) very tasty it sounds great uh, well there's a drink uh that's famous in chicago it's called the um it's called the baskerville caboose They have specials on them all the time, you know, on happy hour. Yeah, Frank, you believe that. They're $1.99 a piece. And by the way, as an aside, is it easier or harder to play after a few drinks? Mm. (laughs) I like that. No, that that actually is a great question, and no one's really asked me that. I personally, I like having a martini and then playing. And then okay. I, I like getting done playing and have another martini. Okay. I like having, I would say, two martinis, and that's pretty fun. Now, uh, do most mus- musicians that you may go see in a club have the same sort of attitude? Or, or is it rarer to find nobody who has uh, indulged in anything until after they perform? Or do most artists don't mind and they can no, handle? That, that's a great question, too. And I'm... In thinking about it, I would say half of the people that I play with don't drink at all. Okay. And um, and the other half, I would say, are more like more like me. We like to have a couple of drinks. And unfortunately, there was a few musicians uh, that used to be in my band that I really, you know, love playing with and were great musicians, but would overdo it. And the one person in particular who I went to college with him was a really close friend. And I would say we were both around 30 at the time. And he would start drinking 
when we started performing. Hmm. And then by the time we were done playing, he was, you know, pretty pretty drunk. Yeah. And it was affecting his performance, so I I had to fire him from the band, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, even though he, he was a good friend. And then um, he got very mad at me for firing him and basically said I had, you know, uh, hurt his financial uh, situation mm. and um, didn't talk to me for a couple years. I bumped into him. We kind of became friends again. And then, unfortunately, he was drinking too much, mm. and he was on a motorcycle mm. and uh, passed away. Oh, my and, God. And got into a bad accident. Terrible. So Terrible. I would just say to anybody, you know, I think— a drink or two is really fun and it's cool. Yeah. And I do a lot of people I play with; they just don't drink at all. But yeah, definitely overdoing it. Um, at least in the the one situation I'm thinking of, it it's you know very uh, very sad. So yeah. I definitely think trying a Catalano sidecar it, it makes <laughs> sense. But but yeah. if you only want to have one, that yeah. that sounds just fine to me. Very good, very good. <laughs> no question about it. Well, I've had a lot of fun, and I know you have. Steve. I've enjoyed it. I with you, Frank. Totally. Uh, good. Thanks so much. I'm glad you did. Thanks for coming on. Of course. And, um, three I'm, Grammys. I've been on three Grammy-winning albums. I only have one. Okay. Oh, oh, only one. Only yeah, one. Well, uh, yeah. Man, only a Grammy one Grammy award winner. <laughs> when you think of what it takes to win sure. one. Hey, just to be in the paragraph with the, you know, with the <laughs> yes. others who are nominated. Yeah. It's cool. Well, you're a you're a fabulous talent, and uh, you're a better human being. You're a you're a great guy, Thanks. and I think that came through this afternoon on this podcast. So uh, we thank you very much, Frank. Certainly well, do. Well, thanks. I really appreciate it. So- all right, Steve. Uh, any closing thoughts here? I know you love jazz, and uh, look, and, uh, you know he hit home with me, Frank, because um, I, I appreciate all music, but especially the kind of music he was talking about, and that he carries on. And look, anybody who can span Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, all the way to Jennifer Lopez, yes. John Legend, yes. and everything in between. <laughs> Is pretty cool. I like that for sure. All right. We want to give a special thanks to today's engineer and executive producer, Tony Lasano, with opishows.com. Opi is hippo backwards, opishows.com. This is distributed by Ed Silla with Radio Misfits. Great talk radio isn't dead. It has just moved to a better place, radiomisfits.com. And as always, we'd like to thank the Museum of Broadcast Communications for our podcast home here. So that's going to do it. Man, he loves to talk, doesn't he, Frank? <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> thought just, he would never stop. Frank Calano, uh, Tokyo number nine. That's it's, the name of the It's CD, a fun right? one. Yep. Okay. Good. We'll pop it in. All right. Thank you both. And that's going to do it. Thank everybody for listening. And uh, you can listen to our other podcasts at uh, radiomisfits.com. Just say, a, just say goodbye. Well, that's what I'm working up to. Oh, you're working slow. Working slow. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. The proceeding was a presentation of Opie Productions. Find our other great shows wherever you find podcasts, including opishows.com. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Opie Productions. Tony, can you shut up? All right, Adam, what uh, country are you from? I am from England. What is the best soccer league in the entire world? The English Premier League. What is your day job? Director of coaching for Illinois Youth Soccer. So if you were, say, a fan of English Premier League and you wanted to hear the, the opinions of someone who is from England, who knows a lot of soccer... 
what podcast would you tell people they need to listen to? Free Kicks with Adam and Rick. And that's on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Free Kicks, a Tony Lasano podcast, an Opie show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. Coming to the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and friends. That's us. I'm Kimmy. I'm Sam. And I am Tommy right here. We're going to talk about Florida men. We're going to talk about paranormal stories. We're going to talk about uh, city stuff. Sex talk. Sex talk. And sex talk. And yeah, sex talk will come up. But only if it's brought up. We got to keep that on the DL. So come meet your new friends with and friends on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network, radiomisfits.com, and Opie Production.